we've gone through, over a period of 10 years, uh, almost 11 now actually, uh, a lot of the prophecies, the only major prophet that we have not addressed specifically, although we've been there from time to time, is the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Psalms is also very much a book of prophecy. Uh, it isn't usually listed as a prophecy or, or from a prophet, but there is much, much prophecy in the book of Psalms. And maybe we'll set aside two years someday to go through the Psalms. I don't know. But uh, Ezekiel is the last of the major prophets or of the prophets in the Bible that we have not really addressed. Daniel comes after it, but we have discussed it some. But I'm sure we'll go back to Daniel time and again. Uh, Bill, that Bill, uh, that's blowing my pages. Maybe back further behind the piano or something. They they stuck a fan on me here because they know I'll be sweating here in a moment. Yeah, I think that'll do. It's not not blowing it now. Anyway, Ezekiel is a very interesting book from a lot of standpoints. Uh, I read through some of the commentaries on the background of the book and background of Ezekiel. And there are parts of Ezekiel that really puzzle them. They consider them very enigmatic. A lot of it is very straightforward, but some of it they scratch their head and wonder, what does this mean? How could this be and what is it talking about? I think with the understanding and the background that we have, we should be able to understand most of it. It's not a book that is sealed like Daniel. And yet, on the other hand, you must understand what is happening in the church and in the world and in the end times in order to understand truly the book of Ezekiel. Now, the name Ezekiel is interesting in itself. It means one strengthened of God or the strength of God. One translated as God will prevail. And I think all of those certainly fit the story uh, of what is here. I like one strengthened of God or the strength of God, especially L, of course, on the end means of God or about God or God itself, L. Just as a, as a note, in our English language, sometimes we shorten the word easy to E-Z-E. -E. Have you seen that? Easy. This book is easy if you're strengthened by God. Without God's help, the things Ezekiel has to say are very, very difficult. And we're going to encounter a place in here where it talks about it being sweet and yet turning bitter. So much of here of what is here is that it's sweet to know that certain things are going to transpire, but there's a certain bitterness involved in what has to happen before that can occur. And I think that is the meaning of that, and we'll get to that more specifically a little later on. Now Ezekiel, so we might get an idea, overlapped toward the end of Jeremiah's ministry, probably the last five or six years that Jeremiah prophesied, Ezekiel began his prophecy. You'll remember Jeremiah, we went through it not too long ago, uh, prophesied of the coming captivity into Babylon and what would occur and why because of Israel's national and personal sins. And Jeremiah was treated very roughly, imprisoned, abused, misused, disbelieved. 
And then the things that Jeremiah said would happen began to happen. Judah went into captivity. Jerusalem was destroyed. And the setting of the book of Ezekiel is uh, along the river Kibar in the land of Babylon, along the river there, which is a tributary of the Euphrates, and it's about 200 miles north of Babylon. So it's in the Babylonian area on up toward Turkey, and that's where they settled a lot of the Jewish captives when they brought them from Jerusalem in the land of Palestine. Uh, Ezekiel is sandwiched in that sense uh, at the end of Jeremiah's ministry, but at the beginning of Daniel's. So they overlapped. The three were contemporary in terms of their lives, uh, breathed some of the same air at the same time, in other words. And uh, Jeremiah started, Ezekiel picked it up before he finished, and then Daniel picked it up before Ezekiel was done. And Daniel's prophecies, as you know, carry us through to the end of the 70 years of captivity and his prayer in Daniel 9 about the release of Israel, and soon they were released by the Persians. So that's the time setting having to do with the captivity of Israel. And of course, we understand that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all are prophecies not only of that time, but of the end time. And therefore, uh, as our nation is about to go into captivity, even as the church already has, uh, so were these prophets set at that time. Now, Ezekiel is not talking all the way through about the original captivity that Jeremiah spoke of. Because Ezekiel did not begin his, captive, his uh, prophesying until the captivity had already occurred. And he was one of the captives that was there by the river Kibar. So Ezekiel, when he talks about a coming captivity, which we'll see in Ezekiel 5 and other places, must be speaking of a future captivity that has not yet occurred. And we'll see that as we get into a little more of the background of the book of Ezekiel. Now let's start in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we turned here during the feast, and I think that it is significant. Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, the commentaries speculate on what the 30th year means here. Some think it was perhaps the 30th year of Ezekiel's life. Uh, it can't be the 30th year of the captivity because, it, as we see, it's the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, and they, count, they uh, kept track of time by the reigns of the kings. So it wasn't in Jehoiakim's 30th year, it was in his fifth year. So that lets that out. The commentaries for the most part, concluded that it must have been talking about the 30th year in the Jubilee cycle. Now, if you will recall, when we started talking about the Jubilee in, at the feast, in Luke 4, where it talks about the acceptable year of the Lord and so on, that Christ was proclaiming liberty to the captives, uh, even so, Ezekiel will do some of that before this book is over. And we saw in chapter 40, verse 1, that in the 25th year of Jehoiakim, which would have been then, if this 30th year is the 30th year of the Jubilee cycle, the 25th year, 20 years later of Jehoiakim's reign, would be year 50. And what occurred at that time? 
Ezekiel saw a vision of the temple of God in a millennial setting. So, the context there would indicate a time of that the Jubilee pictures. Also, I think it is very interesting, and I'll do a little speculating here, emphasis speculating, on some timing of the end-time events and why Ezekiel's prophecies began particularly in the 30th year of the Jubilee cycle. It could have some bearing on the timing of events here at the end. Now, if you'll recall in that sermon on the Jubilees, uh, if this year, which has been established in history as year 574 B.C., uh, that the vision of the temple came, the 25th year of Jehoiakim's reign would have been 574 B.C., uh, you count forward in 50-year increments, and that brings you to 27 A.D., which would have been the beginning of the ministry of Emmanuel, and probably proclaiming a year of liberty or jubilee. You count forward in 50-year increments, and you come to 1776, which was the year... Well, in this case, a year of release, the 49th year, when the Declaration of Independence of America was proclaimed, and 19, I mean, uh, 1777 then would have equated to a jubilee year, when God gave us liberty from the King of England, and this nation was founded as it is today. Now it was founded earlier at Plymouth Rock by uh, pilgrims, but as far as becoming independent from Great Britain, and becoming an entity free of that, uh, it equates to a jubilee year. Very, very interesting, I think. Fast forward to 1926-27, and God began giving Herbert Armstrong freedom from this world system, the beginning of the knowledge of the true Sabbath, the holy days, and so on. So another year of of uh, release, 49th year, 1926, and Jubilee year, 1927, God began to give us the liberty in Christ that we enjoy today through proper knowledge of who the real God is, who the real Christ is, and what their true doctrines are. I find this sequence quite amazing when you put it all together. Then if you fast forward to 1977, and I have not researched this yet, you would have another Jubilee year. Someone was going to check the worldwide news and see if there were events that year that might indicate something, and I, I have not heard any reports on that. I'd be interested in it. Uh, but from 77 to 2027, we would have then another Jubilee in 2027, a year of release in 2026, if this indeed be correct, <clears throat> you have two benchmarks, one beginning in Ezekiel, the other beginning with Christ, the beginning of Christ's ministry, to count forward and backward from in 50-year increments. So uh, the numbers line up beautifully for what has happened in Israel in the end time, uh, as far as our freedom and the church and its freedom. Now, if you tie in also the 70 years of Zechariah, which I think is important, well, I have something very interesting here. I want to review this. Uh, we've been here before, but to tie this together, let's go back to Zechariah 1. And remember the context here. 
in Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah began writing his message in the middle of Haggai's message, which is about the end-time temple that will be built, the latter temple, as opposed to the former temple under Herbert Armstrong. Uh, this latter temple is going to be built by and with the two witnesses, uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel of Zechariah 3 and 4, who in Zechariah 4, 14 are mentioned as the two olive branches and the only other place that those two anointed olive branches or anointed ones are mentioned as in Revelation 11, which is a chapter about the witness of the two. So these chapters are talking about that. You go back to Haggai and, and the, the remnant of the church comes together under Zerubbabel and Joshua and they form one church. Uh, you go to Revelation and it talks about seven candlesticks and seven lamps, seven churches and their seven angels. Here in Zechariah 3, down in verse, uh, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 2, a candlestick and seven lamps on it, seven pipes to the seven lamps. So seven women will take hold of one man, as per Isaiah 4. So there will only be at that point then a remnant gathered from all seven of the eras brought together into one congregation one remnant church. So the witnesses at that point will preside over one church and all seven angels will be there. That's the way it's laid out. Now, in the middle of this context, you have in Zechariah 1, uh, up at verse 12, the angel of the eternal answered and said, O eternal of hosts, how long... Will you not have mercy on Jerusalem, which we know to be the church today, Hebrews 12, and on the cities of Judah, against which you have had indignation these threescore and ten years? So he refers to the, 20, the 70 years of Jeremiah, as Daniel did in Daniel 9, knowing that the 70 years of the captivity in Babylon were almost finished. Jeremiah had made it clear that that was the case that the captivity would be a long one, that it would be 70 years, and that at the end of the 70 years they would be released. Now, they were not released immediately upon the uh, expiration of the 70 years, uh, which was when Babylon apparently was destroyed. But in the second year of Darius, as Haggai dates it, and in the, let's say, Daniel 9, I think, the first year of Darius is mentioned there by Daniel, is when he understood... And he said, I understood by numbers, by counting, by math, that the uh, captivity was almost over or should be ending at that point. So he added it up, calculated it, and figured it was about done. And then he prayed the prayer in Daniel 9 uh, about release and God's mercy and so on. Now, did that refer to just that time? No, it has to be that there is a 70 years in the end time because it is again mentioned in Zechariah in the context of building the latter temple through the two witnesses. So that 70 years was not just a one-time prophecy, but it had a dual fulfillment, and there is a 70 years here at the end. Now, Herbert Armstrong began to understand and have liberty in the Scriptures in 1926-27, 
He and his wife basically kept the feast for seven years by themselves. And then God opened it up after the seventh year in 1933-34 so that the work itself, the church, began to expand and grow. And a work was begun as opposed to two people keeping the Sabbath and holy days. Now I think that we can equate the end of the 70 years or calculate it beginning in about 1933 or 34, which would mean that it would end around uh, 2003 or 2004. I think it is quite interesting that we received this land, closed the deal in December of 2002, and the land was divided up to individuals so that they might begin to move onto it and begin to actually begin a physical move out of Babylon. I think it was in the third Sabbath of January 2003. I think at that time we and I deem us a, or adjudge us a preparation crew for what is to come. We began to settle and build a village, a community, which has now become actually a township. And he said Jerusalem would be built as and inhabited as towns without walls in Zechariah 2, verse 4. <coughs> I think God gave us this understanding and wanted us to move out of the cities into the wilderness and to begin preparing a place that he would bring his leadership to, and that he will bring the remnant to. And it will consist of more than one village before it is over, probably several thousands of people, a tithe, a remnant of his people that were called out in this end time. And he will choose 10% that he will stir. It's not something that anyone goes out and finds, but people he will stir to come to build the temple, as per the whole book of Haggai and in Zechariah 6. So this is something God has planned. It's something He is enacting. And I think that however small our part may be, that we are a part of it. No one else seems, for the most part, to understand it. A few individuals here and there do. Uh, but they're rare indeed. And no organization that I know of. And I think we would know of it by now if that were the case. So I think it's a job God has given us to do. That doesn't make us important. It doesn't make us great. It just simply means that God took average, normal, everyday people and opened their minds to a job that needed to be done and that we can be a part of service to God and to the church by beginning something that He will make bigger and better before it is over with. Now, How does Ezekiel tie into that story that I just recounted for you? I think it is interesting that he began this in the 30th year of the Jubilee cycle. Now, what is this year? If you have a Jubilee in 2027, that would mean that if you count back, we would be 20 years from that now, 2006-2007 time frame. So, God began 
through Ezekiel, a prophecy, which we'll see as we get into it, that has to do with the beginning of God's intervention in a powerful way with the church. And if the numbers are correct, and if this analysis is correct, then we should see this happening toward the end of 2006 or into 2007 in order for the time frame of Ezekiel to fit the work of the two witnesses at the end. And I will show you very shortly that the message of Ezekiel is tied directly to the work of the two witnesses at the end. So I do believe that God has given us the information about the Jubilees at a very important moment, an important time, and that we might begin to understand that we have about 20 years probably to the outside limit of the return of Christ, which could be as late as, but I see no way scripturally it could be later than 2027. Now it may be considered, don't panic, it may be considerably earlier than that. But that would be the outside date of the scheduled jubilee based on this series of numbers which line up absolutely perfectly. Now, we know that Jerusalem has to be built and inhabited as towns without walls, inhabited by men and cattle, as per Zechariah 2. Now, I have speculated that that group of towns probably would have to exist over at least a somewhat protracted period of time in order for it to be a light and an example to the world. We have a world that is getting away from agriculture, that is increasingly uh, producing, well, they call it foods, chemically, uh, you know, cows and Plants don't make food anymore. Factories do, using chemicals and some natural things. There is a movement in this country to get back to the more natural because people have begun to realize that we're killing ourselves with our refining and our uh, chemicals and all the things that have been being used for the last 40 to 100, 150 years. And the fruits of that are beginning to show up in cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and a plethora of other diseases that are afflicting us today. And we're beginning to suffer as a result of our mismanagement, misuse, and misunderstanding, and frankly, greed. If you can make something that you can put on the shelf that will last for 10 years, then you don't have much waste. So, embalm it and put it on the grocery store shelf, if you possibly can. Fix it so it'll last as long as possible, <coughs> and then it doesn't matter if people don't last because you made your profit on it. They don't care. Okay? But God is going to intervene in a very powerful way. And I think that if we are getting back to the agricultural way of living while the world is getting away from it, we're headed in the right direction. Now, where He has put us in the desert and in the wilderness... You would think it was crazy or insane to say, let's go build an agricultural community out in the desert. But God has His purposes. 
Because we have seen in many scriptures that even in this age, not just in the millennium, that in a microcosm and a small representation of what he intends to do in the future, he is going to bless his people in the desert with a garden of God, a garden similar to Eden. And it will be there as a testimony against the world and the way that it is doing things. And it will be a testimony also that if you do follow God's ways, He will bless, and your water problems will be solved, your food problems solved, your shelter problems, your clothing problems can all be solved through obedience to God, whereas man's problems are increasing right now to the point that they're beginning to say man cannot survive past 2050. Pick your estimate, but it isn't very far down the road with global warming and you know on and on and on those things that we know about and wars and the nuclear bombs and various things that are proliferating right now in the world. God is going to be a wall of fire of protection and a covert from the desert heat. We know from many scriptures that it has to be in the desert, the wilderness, the mountains, and so on. So he plans on showing by example what can be if people will simply obey God. Now, God does not do anything without warning through his servants, the prophets. So he is going to have those two prophets at the end presiding over a remnant church which, whose glory will outshine by far that of the former temple under Herbert Armstrong. And physically it will be blessed in such a way that the world simply cannot deny it. They may hate it, and they will, and ultimately they will destroy it. But God will protect it until that witness is finished, and then his people will have to flee to the place of safety for three and a half years. So that has to exist for some time. It has to be built. I don't know how long it will take for the remnant to gather once it starts, or how long. He gives no idea of how long the period of time is with men and cattle and these towns without walls. It could be three and a half years. It could be five or six or seven or eight years. However, if we look at our age and we look at the calendar and we look in the mirror and we think Christ doesn't come till 2027, see you in the resurrection. On the other hand, if he gives us deer's feet and the lame walk and the deaf hear and the blind see and he heals and restores health, to all his people, even in old age. And he's done that before. Remember Abraham and Sarah who couldn't have children and suddenly could? God is quite capable of making his people healthy and strong. So we need not be afraid if this thing goes on longer than we might have wished if conditions change. You know, if you don't just feel old and you can get around and you can see and you can hear, then life has a different perspective, doesn't it? So, it may go on for some time. It could go as late as 2027. You take three and a half years of tribulation off that, and you take towns without walls off that, and so on, and I could see a maximum of 20 years. And then we have to throw in the factor that Christ said very clearly 
that it will be cut short for the elect's sake, or there would be no flesh saved alive. So if 2027 is the outside date, we don't know how much he plans to cut it short. It might be days, it might be weeks, months, it could be years, it could even be a decade. I do not know. The context of Matthew 24 seems to be the three and a half years of tribulation that might be cut short. Uh, that seems to be the context there where that is mentioned. So it might be cut from three and a half years back to three years or, you know, pick a number. He will intervene clearly before that is finished. On the other hand, it talks in Daniel about the 1,335 days being finished. And at the end of the 1,260 days, the witnesses being res uh, resurrected in Jerusalem. Not this Jerusalem, but the one, the original that is called Sodom and Gomorrah spiritually where our Savior was killed. He makes it clear which Jerusalem, and the reason for that is that there is a Jerusalem that is the church, which is in a different spot, but the attention will turn from that back to the Middle East and the original Jerusalem at some point. And that's where the witnesses will be killed and be resurrected. So, there is a variation in time here that we don't know, but I think it is quite interesting that Ezekiel began this prophecy in the 30th year of what appears to be the Jubilee cycle, and that exactly 20 years later, he saw visions of the temple of God in the millennium. Now, let's go into Ezekiel a little bit with that background, understanding that the timing may be precise here. And it makes the book of Ezekiel come alive a little bit more. Now, before I start reading there, keep your finger if you're already there. I'm going to go back to Zechariah for a moment. Uh, and I want to go down a little past in chapter 2 where it talks about uh, the towns in the wilderness and measuring Jerusalem, which is the church. Verse 6, it says, Flee from the land of the north, which is typical of Babylon. And we know uh, via another series and understanding of Scripture that the modern Babylon is the United States, the woman, the great whore that will be destroyed by the beast and the false prophet. And he says, I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, says the eternal. So speaking of the church, he has spread it abroad. He is going to gather a remnant of it. So we're looking at right here, exactly where we are in terms of prophecy today, the church being scattered. Then he says in verse 7, Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Get away from Babylon, just as he says in Jeremiah 50, 51, and Isaiah 48, I think it is, and other places. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, After the glory has he sent me to the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. So, the church is the center of God's attention here at the end, at the time of the beginning of the work of the witnesses. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and you shall know that the eternal of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, the church. There will be one daughter at that time, a remnant that has been put together. For lo, I will come... And I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. Now, whether he will visibly appear or not, perhaps remains to be seen, but he is certainly going to be with us, whether we can see him or not. Emmanuel means God with us. 
And many nations or many people shall be joined to the eternal in that day and shall be my people. He's going to gather a remnant together. And I will dwell in the midst of you, and you shall know that the eternal of hosts has sent me to you. And the eternal shall inherit Judah, his portion, and the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. So even though he has cast the church away, scattered it abroad, he is going to gather it and choose it again. Then there is a warning, verse 13. Be silent, O all flesh. There is something that is about to occur that is going to involve all flesh. Not just a remnant of the church, which he has dealt with, but now he is about to address the whole world, everybody in it. For he is raised up out of his holy habitation. Then he introduces Joshua and Zerubbabel and gives them their commission that they are to carry out in gathering the church in uh, preparation for what is to come. It talks about the men with Joshua who will do signs and wonders. So God is going to start doing some miracles, perhaps some healings that are very obvious, just as he did in Acts 2. God works in patterns. He repeats things. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So all these prophecies about healing, I think, are going to begin with the beginnings of the latter temple, where God will begin to show his mighty power in his hand. He says, I'm rising up. I'm ready to go to work. You better all give a moment of silence and respect and reverence to me because all Hades is about to break loose on earth. And then he begins to show how that will happen. And this is sandwiched right in between Zechariah 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, showing the end of the 70 years, the development of the leadership, and how it will come together and the people then will be stirred to come to them. Uh, they are types also of Moses and Elijah, as per Malachi 4 and Luke, uh, also a type of John the Baptist there, the Elijah to come. And you will remember that God prepared Moses 40 years. God does not do a major work any time without preparing a leadership ahead of time. So I suspect that those who are the final two witnesses for God will have had extensive training, probably at least 40 years of formal training in what God is about to do. They're not going to be somebody that he just pulls off the street uh, they're going to be people that he is trained ahead of time to do a job at the end. He has always done that, and it appears that he will do that again because he uses those two examples of Ezekiel, I mean of Ezekiel, I mean of Moses and Elijah. Now, let's go back with that further background to the book of Ezekiel. It came to pass in the 30th year of the Jubilee cycle, I think you could plug in there fairly safely. In the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kibar. So Jerusalem is destroyed, the captivity has already occurred, and he was taken captive with them. That the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. This was mentioned in the sermonette. Uh, there were several who saw visions of God, uh, as a part of preparation for a job to do. Uh, 
The Apostle John had revelation or a revelation or a vision from God to write the book of Revelation. And he described it in the best way that he could with what he had at hand. I believe he probably saw helicopters and jet airplanes and bombs and tanks and modern warfare. And he did not know or have the first idea or clue of how to describe it. So he described it as grasshoppers and flying insects and various things. Uh, because he'd never seen things like that before. But he saw it there in vision. <laughs> Daniel had visions, was able to answer dreams. Isaiah had visions of God. So God sometimes has to reveal to people what he has in mind by showing them a dream at night or a vision in the day. He did that in the trans- Christ did that in the Transfiguration when he took James, Peter, and John up on the mountain, and they saw him transfigured as the Son of God. So it is a tool that God uses to show people what they are to do and to give an idea of what is going on. Okay, in the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the eternal came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, so he was of the priest family, the son of Buzzai, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Eternal was there upon him. I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north. We know that God's throne is in the sides of the north, so it's coming from that direction. A great cloud and a fire enfolding itself. So a billowing cloud and fire. And a brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof is the color of amber out of the midst of fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. So he could see in these four creatures the image or shape of a man. And everyone had four faces. So there's some some departure from the look of a man, because none of us have four faces today. These were specially created angels. We'll see that as we get further into chapter 10 and other places in Ezekiel. (coughs) Caribs. Everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings. Their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. I suppose they then had feet that were similar to hooves as opposed to man's feet. And they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. You've seen brass shined to a high polish, and it's very bright, beautiful. And they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. So they had the wings sticking out, and then from under there came the hands of a man. This must have been, he saw this suddenly in a vision, and out of the clouds and fire and lightning... He saw these creatures like he'd never seen before. Now, he's trying to describe what they looked like. And it's, it's, it's a little hard to understand how the wings fit together and everything as you go through this, along with chapter 10. But he's trying to do the best he can here to explain what it looked like. Had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. I don't know whether that means that they they were the same base on the angel, 
or whether they were close enough together that their wingtips touched, or exactly what he's saying here. I, I went to some commentaries, which I rarely do, just to kind of get their take on this, and they have some real difficulties trying to explain this. Uh, they've tried going back to the original manuscripts and trying to get the translation put together exactly right, and yet they're still confused. They don't understand what is happening here. And I think we need to grasp it. And that's why I went to Zechariah 2. He says, I'm standing up out of my holy habitation. And what he does is he gives Ezekiel here a view of these cherubs, and we'll see what they amount to in a little bit and why they're there. And it is showing that Christ is beginning to stand up and take direct part in what is going on on the earth. To take charge, in other words. And this is his arrival. We'll see that as we go on. Uh, verse 10, As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man. Now, they had four heads, remember, each one of them. So they had four faces on those four heads. One was looked like a man, one was like a lion and they on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle, which I presume was also on the left side, so you had two on the right and two on the left. I did that backward, but whatever. Thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covered their bodies. So they must have had two sticking out and two folded covering their bodies. And they went every one straight forward. They didn't just wander like a cow might wander through a field. When they moved, they moved straight. Wherever the spirit was to go, they went. So there was a spirit involved here, not just the cherubs or the angels, but a spirit. And they turned not when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. You've seen charcoal heated up where it's red hot. So they, they glowed. Uh, and like the appearance of lamps, so they shined. It went up and down among the living creatures. The light played on their bodies, back and forth apparently, maybe like strobe lights to one degree or another. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. I wonder if they had Ezekiel's attention by this point. <laughs> Fire, clouds coming out of the sky, and then lightning coming from it, issuing forth. And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. So they moved very rapidly, just like lightning across the sky. Now as I beheld the living creatures, behold one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with its four faces. So now we introduce not only heads and wings, but wheels. The appearance of the wheels and their work or their adornment was like the color of a barrel. Now, the commentaries of the Bible dictionaries don't know for sure what barrel refers to here. They speculate perhaps aquamarine, maybe topaz or chrysolite. Like a precious gemstone anyway. And with all that lightning and fire shining through a gemstone, it had to have been Incredibly beautiful. And they four had one likeness, and their appearance and their work was it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. I don't know exactly what that means or how to picture it or how to draw it, if you could. I've seen attempts by different people to draw things like this. 
But from his perspective, it looked like a circle within a circle, I guess, or a wheel within a wheel. And when they went, they went up on their four sides, and they turned not when they went. How do you go on your four sides? I don't understand exactly what that means, but I guess it really doesn't matter. The main thing here I want to get out of this is the manifestation of what it was. Uh, verse 18, As for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful. Whatever it was above them, as rings, towered so high, it scared it. Dreadful. And their rings were full of eyes, round about them four. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. So apparently this UFO landed... And then it went up from the earth at some point. Verse 20. Wherever the Spirit was to go, they went. There was their Spirit to go. They were willing. And when that Spirit that was leading them wanted to go one way or the other, they were willing to do it and were immediately responsive. Picture this as a super automobile. One that can move like lightning, can go any direction, can change directions on a dime. It is a means of conveyance is what it is, and we'll see that more clearly in chapter 10. I won't go there today because we'll get there in due time. And he didn't put it here at the beginning. He put it in chapter 10. So why get ahead of the story? But it is more closely identified there, and you can read ahead if you want to. I already have anyway. But I'm not going there myself at this point. But there was a spirit involved here. The spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. So it was all in perfect coordination. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. Now, there were four cherubs here, we'll see in chapter 10. But there was someone there who was guiding and leading it. And it turns out it was none other than Christ the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creature was as the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above. Whatever it was, was quite impressive, like crystal with light shining through it. And under the firmament were their wings straight, the one toward the other. Everyone had two, which covered on this side, and everyone had two, which covered on that side of their bodies. And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters, as the voice of the Almighty. Remember Revelation 1, where it describes Christ and His voice as the sound of many waters and like thunder. The voice of speech as the noise of a host, like a million people may be speaking at once, so loud. When they stood, they let down their wings. So if they had two covering their body, perhaps they, they relaxed them when they stood. And there was a voice from the firmament that was over their heads when they stood and had let down their wings. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. Now here is a throne. A throne has to be big enough to sit on. And I submit to you that this was the throne of Christ. And it is, it is His conveyance, His chariot, His vehicle, His car, if you will, in modern parlance. Only it is comprised not of horsepower, but of angel power. And his throne was toward the top of it, and the throne looked like a sapphire. 
a deep blue sapphire with lightning shining through it. Do you get the picture? No, you don't get the picture. I don't either. It's too glorious. We've seen little sapphires, you know. We've not seen a sapphire the size of a throne that Christ could sit on with lightning shining through it. <coughs> and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and it describes Christ as appearing, shining like the sun, his face, and having that kind of glory. Uh, from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain. So bright and yet full of color. A rainbow. So was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the eternal. So he was looking in vision at Christ himself, glorified, brought by a chariot with a portable throne, carried about by four cherubs. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spoke. Pretty impressive to Ezekiel, sitting there by the river Kibar. Christ made a very, very impressive approach because he had a very important commission that had to be carried out. And it is a commission that had to do with a future captivity and with the end of the age, culminating in the temple of the eternal, the end of Ezekiel, in the millennium. And it may very well be that we will begin to see Christ stand up as per the end of Zechariah 2 and begin doing some of these things very shortly if the year 2027 is indeed a jubilee and this would be about the 30th year. It all seems to fit together. The 70 years has ended, I believe. And we are only a year or two away from it at this point. And they waited a couple of years at the end of the 70 before they were released and went back to build Jerusalem. We have a commission to begin to build a village. God will supply the leadership and the remnant will come together. And based on the series of numbers I gave you in the beginning of Ezekiel here and when it started it could very well be that we'll begin to see some things happen in 2006. Now, this is almost November 2006, but remember, God does not follow the Gregorian calendar, and His year begins and ends in the spring. So, the year 2006, in that sense, does not end until April as opposed to the end of December. So 2006, 2007, I would not be surprised if this analysis is correct to see some things start to happen that we have been looking for for a long, long time. That's not a prediction. That's not a prophecy. That's an analysis of some numbers and the way they are currently laid out before us with the addition now of understanding that this may be the 30th year of the Jubilee, and that is when God began to 
opened some doors and began to manifest what he was about to do. And that ties in, I think, very clearly with the last verse of Zechariah 2 where he says, all right, I'm going to stand up out of my holy habitation. I'm ready to go to work. There are scriptures in Isaiah that talk about, rise, O Lord, and go, go, go do. That's what you've said you will do. He says it will be a short work, not again the echoing from the hills, but in actuality is going to occur. So we may be closer than we think. There is a forecasting outfit in Europe, I think in France. Uh, back in the very beginning of this year, they put out uh, a projection and they show that events happen in a pattern and that we were entering a phase of high prosperity uh, that would begin in the spring and would end in November, from June to November, and it would be of unparalleled wealth, and we have seen expansion of credit and building boom even increasing, and that it would change in November and go into the impact phase. In other words, you have free credit, you have people going to debt, hand over head, <laughs> or head over tea kettle, or however you want to put it. You have an expansion and a, an appearance of wealth, but the impact of all the sins, the misuse, the abuse that created this then begins to hit. And we have seen this summer, in a way unparalleled, and now suddenly we begin to see the housing market fall, the dollar declining very rapidly, and so on. And this false wealth that we have been looking at that has enabled us to build houses and buildings and so on, is clearly about to be taken away. As Zephaniah 1 talks about a financial crash, these people project that the impact will begin in November. I don't know whether they're correct or not. I'm just giving you this information as I read it. <clears throat> but very shortly, they think, we're going to begin to see this thing unravel. And you can read any number of reports about the fiat currency and how it's just worthless. And one of these days, people overseas are going to get over their greed, and the fear cycle will come. You see, they all know that the dollar is overvalued. They know that it is not supported by factories and industrial output anymore, that it is just a service society we have, and we import far more than we export. Our balance of trade is minus 70 billion approximately every month now. Uh, you know, you, you cannot go on interminably that way without termination. It can't happen. Your income must exceed your outgo. That is the only way that finances work. Otherwise, you get deeper and deeper into trouble. And at some point, you see, the world is going to realize, hey, I've got to cut my losses. The financial cycle basically runs on two things, fear and greed. People buy into the stock market because they're greedy. And at some point, they begin to fear that it's overpriced, and their fear causes them to draw back, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you fear and draw back, it does go down. The world recognizes the U.S. dollar and the U.S. economy is in serious trouble, but the world is holding as its reserve currency the dollar 
between 60 and 70 percent of their savings are in dollars. So they're still in greed, wanting the American dollar, but they have begun to realize that there is no real worth or value there, and fear is beginning to grab some of them. And Russia has announced, China has announced, the, the Arab Emirates have announced that they are going to begin to replace their savings with euros and yen rather than dollars. They're scared to take it all out at once because the value of what they haven't exchanged would drop to nothing. So they're doing it a little at a time. But at some point, fear becomes intense fear. And then it's everybody go for his now because tomorrow it won't be there. You see. So it will create a collapse. It appears that collapse is fairly imminent, whether it's November, as these people seem to think, or December, or January, or February, or even a year from now. I don't know, and I'm not going to try to predict that, but I do know, looking at the signs, that it's very close. So, things will change very dramatically, I'd say, within the next 12 to 24 months, and maybe even sooner than that. So, maybe it is time. But as the economy collapses and the financial crash of Zephaniah 1 occurs, God will also begin to do something on His own to take charge of what is happening down here in a very dramatic way. <clears throat> and that's what He is revealing in this first chapter to Ezekiel. The, uh, the commentators don't understand it because they don't understand end-time prophecy. They don't understand God's church. They don't understand spiritual Israel and spiritual Jerusalem and Judah. Therefore, they cannot understand this, and they cannot understand the timing of it, because they don't know about the former and the latter temple and the work of God here at the end, and that Herbert Armstrong was not the Elijah to come. He did not restore all things. He restored a lot of truth, but not all things. And we have seen in the church since his demise quite a few things that have been returned to what the Bible actually says as opposed to what the church believed. So there is still probably much that needs to be restored. And if Herbert Armstrong didn't restore all things, and we've seen some restored, and I expect more, then he couldn't have been the end-time Elijah. He and his son both died. They thought they were the two witnesses and they would finish the work. They didn't understand that they weren't. They were a witness of sorts, and they had and oversaw the former temple. But the real witnesses are at the end, and they will restore all things, and they will last until the last three and a half days before the resurrection, where they will be killed. Herbert Armstrong, Gunnar Ted Armstrong are both dead. They did not die in the streets of Jerusalem, and they were not resurrected three and a half years later nor have we seen the Great Tribulation. Therefore, they cannot have been the two witnesses, or he could not have been the Elijah to come. It simply does not fit the Scriptures as we see them being carried out today. So he introduces this book in a very dramatic fashion because Christ is going to begin to intervene in world events and church events very soon in a very dramatic fashion, just as he did in Acts 2 with the early New Testament church. We're going to see soon 
dramatic healings. We're going to see miracles from God. We're going to see a Garden of Eden in the desert. So that's the way he introduces it. Christ appearing on the scene in his glory, in his chariot, his portable throne. Now I'll speculate a little bit here that I don't think that the two witnesses <coughs> will be in Jerusalem for three and a half years preaching and then die there. I think they will be a witness all over the world and will have to travel to various places and bring plagues and blood and various things wherever they go, pointing back to the place of safety and the protection of God's people and them being a light on a hill in the heights of Zion. They will be able to point there to where God's true people are and show how people ought to be living and then they'll see the blessing that is there and then when they won't listen, their blood, their water will be turned to blood and various things of that nature or the rain will be shut off and they will see the contrast. But at the same time, you're going to have the beast and the false prophet doing incredible miracles so people will not listen to God's witness because there's a millennium being set up a counterfeit one that will not last a thousand years <clears throat> by the beast power with a false Christ. And they will turn the heads of the people instead of God's true witness. It's the way God set it up. But I wonder, because Elijah was lifted up and carried to do a different phase of his work and wrote letters back later, if Christ was not showing Ezekiel the means whereby the witnesses would go out maybe back to a place of safety every day and go out every day as lightning in a conveyance to a different part of the world to preach that day and go home at night. That may very well be the case because he wants an emphasis on his people in Zion and them as an example. He goes away from this, but he brings it back again in chapter 8 and chapter 10 and so on. So just kind of keep that thought in mind. I don't know that it is the case, but it very well could be based on the way that this is introduced and how it is talked about later on. But Christ himself, apart from all of it, for sure, <clears throat> is going to be very much in evidence. He may not be visibly there, or he may. He did show himself visibly to Paul for three and a half years of teaching him in the desert. He didn't say, you'll never see me again until I come back in glory, did he? He said, I'll not talk often with you from that point when he ascended into the heavens. And he did come back and spend three and a half years with Paul in the deserts of Arabia. So there is precedence for him being with his people. <coughs> Whether he shows himself or not is apart from the story in that sense. But you remember, don't you, when all those chariots of fire were out there, and it wasn't that Elijah, was that Elijah or Elisha, I can't remember, uh, couldn't see them, and then suddenly they appeared. Oh, I see there is protection here. So God is going to take care of it, whether it's visible or whether it's invisible, it will be there. But he gave Ezekiel a visual vision so that he might write it down for us to read and know that the intervention of Almighty, or the Almighty, through Christ, will be here. Now he gives him his commission. 
chapter 2. So, he had this vision. He saw Christ in this portable throne. And then came the message. He said to me, Son of man, stand upon your feet. Remember, Ezekiel had fallen on his face. And I will speak to you. And the Spirit entered into me when he spoke to me, and he set me upon my feet. He told him to get up, but he probably couldn't. He was probably scared half to death, and all the strength and energy had gone out of his limbs, and his muscles probably wouldn't work. So even though he was told to stand up, says Christ set him up on his feet, that I heard him that spoke to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even to this very day. Now, how did Zechariah begin his message to the latter temple in Zechariah 1? He says, don't be as your forefathers who rebelled. Listen to me. So he's telling Ezekiel, I'm going to send you to those rebellious people who would not listen and will not listen. Now, we're going to see that this is at the end, and specifically who it is that is to deliver this message in the end, as opposed to Ezekiel himself. Ezekiel was given this, but it was a prophecy to be fulfilled later, but it needed to be written down then. So God brought it to Ezekiel to write down for us upon whom the ends of the world have come, as Paul stated that all these prophecies were written for us. Very clearly he stated that. <clears throat> so he says, I'm sending you to Israel, a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. Now, if you will remember in uh, Revelation 11, he tells the two witnesses even not to go to the court of the Gentiles or the outer co court, but to measure the altar and those that worship there. So those who administer the altar, the ministry and the people who go there to hear and to worship at the temple of God or in the temple of God. They are restricted from going at first to the Gentiles. So how does he address Ezekiel? He says, I send you to the children of Israel that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even to this very day. Now this book, again, is a projection for the end time. So when it says this very day we can understand that as today. Remember, they had already been taken into captivity when this vision came. So it wasn't a vision of a captivity then that was to come. It had already happened. This was a captivity to come later. And that will be today, as we shall see. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send you to them, and you shall say to them, this is the word of God. Now, they're going to have an attitude of rebellion. They're not going to want to listen. They're not going to want to hear. They'll say, that's just a man. That's just his opinion. They'll have all kinds of excuses. It doesn't matter. They will not be teachable. They will not be pliable. They will not be humble. That's what he's saying here. They'll be proud. They'll be vain. They'll be arrogant. They will have their own opinions. They will not listen. Now, we know from Haggai and Zechariah and other places 
But 90% of the church will not listen to the two witnesses that God sends in the church. Only a 10% remnant will even listen to the two witnesses when they show up. And I suspect, if these numbers we rehearsed are correct, they will probably be revealed to the church as a whole within the next 24 months. 2006 or 2007, or by the end of 2007, which comes in April of 2008. I'm giving myself some room there. I'm not making a prophecy. I'm saying if this analysis is correct and we're looking at the numbers right and looking at the beginning of the book Ezekiel correctly, <clears throat> that they will probably be revealed to the whole church within a very short time frame from now. Because I believe we are past the 70 years. And I believe that we are in the Jubilee cycle probably the 30th year. But they are to go to Israel. First, to spiritual Israel. And it is spiritual Israel who will not listen. It's the church that will not listen. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will not hear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there has been a prophet among them. They're going to have to admit that God is working there whether they will listen or not. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with you, and you do dwell among scorpions. So he says, when this message comes at the end of the age, that there will be people around, the one giving the message, who are briars and thorns and scorpions. Or, my margin says, rebels for briars and thorns. Rebellious people. So, when we see these things begin to happen, we must realize that very few will listen. They have their own focus, their own ideas, their own beliefs. They won't listen. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks. Maybe they'll give you the white eye. Maybe they'll say, oh yeah, okay, sure, sure. Or whatever. It's just your opinion. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they will hear or whether they will not hear. For they are most rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not you rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. says, I'm sending you to a rebellious people who probably will not listen to you, but you had better listen to me and you'd better take what I give you and digest it and use it. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent to me, and lo, a roll of a book, a scroll, was therein. And he spread it before me, 
And it was written within and without, and there was written therein lamentation and mourning and woe. Now, Jeremiah's message overlapped Ezekiel's. The last thing that Ezekiel or that Jeremiah wrote was the book of Lamentations. And it is a strong lament for spiritual Israel, the church. It talks a lot in the book of Lamentations about the priests and the ministry and the temple. It's not talking about the physical nation first and foremost, but the church. So, the book that was put before Ezekiel had lamentation. It had mourning. You mourn when there's death, when there's destruction. So, the message that he had was going to have a lot of sorrow and mourning and woe. What do we have in the book of Revelation? Mourning, death, destruction, and three woes. So he's going to show him an end-time message for today. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat that you find. Eat this roll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said to me, Son of man, cause your belly to eat, and fill your bowels with this roll, digest it, in other words, that I give you. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. It had a lot of things in it that were sweet, that were good. Notice over in verse 14, So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness. Now he ate the roll and it tasted sweet. But when he actually started doing what it said... He was lifted up by the Spirit of God. That means he was carried away, like Elijah originally had been carried away. So you see where I'm getting the thought that maybe there is a conveyance whereby the end-time ministry will be taken around the world to various places. There are various inferences to things like that through here, verse 14 being one of them. I've skipped ahead to verse 14 for a reason, because now I want to go back to Revelation 10. And we will find the same language back here. And that is not coincidence. The only two places that this is mentioned. Revelation 10. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was up on his head. And his face was it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Now that sounds very much like what we just read in Ezekiel 1, doesn't it? Had the firmament above and a rainbow... And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, meaning people, and his left foot on the earth. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. So he heard what they said, and he was about to write it, and a voice said, Don't write that. That's sealed up. Now, the book of Revelation isn't sealed, but what those seven thunders said is sealed. I heard somebody a few years ago say, well, I know what they said. And I said, okay. He thought they were the voices of the angels of the seven churches. That's a guess. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Sealed. Sometime we'll know.
And the angel which I saw, verse 5, stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swore by him that lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. So we get a view here that this angel is talking about Almighty God. And he has begun to intervene. And that he has said there will be no more time. In other words, this is the end time, and these are the end time events that we're talking about. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he has declared to his servants, the prophets. The prophets referred to this time, but it was still a mystery that man would become God. Now, that is something that Herbert Armstrong did restore, an understanding that man is to become God. He didn't restore everything, but that was a very critical restoration. And the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. So an angel is holding a little book. Remember the imagery of Ezekiel 2, 3. A little book in the hand of the angel. And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it up. It shall make your belly bitter, but it shall be in your mouth sweet as honey. Ezekiel said when he ate it, it was sweet as honey in his mouth, but it turned into bitterness. Is there a connection between Ezekiel and Revelation? I think that's pretty much a no-brainer. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and my belly became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So, this was vision was to whom? To John. John was what? He was the only apostle left standing at this point in time. So he represented the church and the leadership of the church at that point. Now, he was going to die, and he was not going to fulfill this prophecy. He didn't prophesy again. He wrote the book of Revelation, and that was the end of the deal. So, obviously, it's referring to those who will be the leadership of the church at a different time. Well, when is the book of Revelation set? At the end time. Now, what do we see here when it says, you must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings? That it is a ministry that will go out to all different peoples around the earth. However, it does not start that way because the continuation into chapter 11 is, And there was given me a reed like a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. Now, ultimately, you must prophesy again. Now, what did Ezekiel do? He prophesied once. He wrote it all down, what he had been given. Now, at the end, there will be other prophets of God who will take the book of Ezekiel and they will have to eat the same things Ezekiel ate and it will taste sweet because there are things in Ezekiel about the world tomorrow and the beauty of the kingdom of God and the mystery of God being finished and the fulfillment of God's plan. And yet there is much in the book of Ezekiel that has to do with events that would make your belly bitter, that will be very hurtful. So, John is projecting this forward, the, story, the same story 
of Ezekiel 2 to the end-time church and its leaders, and they are told to measure the temple of God. They are given authority to measure for spiritual uh, straightness, a plumb line, and a rod, and a reed. That's how you check whether something is straight up and down and right. They're given that. That is mentioned in other places as well in relationship to their ministry. <laughs> so their first job is to the temple of God. That corresponds to Zechariah 4, where there's one candlestick with seven lamps that attach all seven churches to one man, Zerubbabel, the leader. Measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. All right. They are told at the beginning of their ministry, don't go to the world, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the church. Now, who does God tell Ezekiel to go to? A rebellious people. And we'll see as we go through the book of Ezekiel that he is addressing the church first. Point one of proof, Ezekiel 34, where he addresses the ministry in specific. And everybody in the church knows about Ezekiel 34 by now. They've all gone there. But they are the ones who are set there to straighten out, to make the church be upright. They're given that power, that authority. And I will give power to my witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred threescore days clothed in sackcloth. It says, These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. There's only one other place this is mentioned. That's Zechariah 4.14. So, those prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah have to do with the two witnesses at the end, not with anyone else before. And it does talk later on about them going before all kinds of people. Their first job then is to, let's see, it says, these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth, verse 10. It's a broader picture during that 1260 days. Before that, it's with the church rebuilding the latter temple, getting it ready, getting it measured, getting it properly in order, and then their message goes out to the rest of the world, who ultimately kill them. But at first, they're to go to spiritual Israel, later on to the physical nation perhaps, and to the whole world. The first job is with the church, as is clearly shown in Zechariah 3 and 4. So, the upshot of that, and the reason I went back here, is to show that there is a connection between Ezekiel's message, how it would be taken, and the two witnesses at the end, and their first message is to spiritual Israel, leaving out the rest of the world at first, and that they will be going to a rebellious church, therefore, not a rebellious world. The world will also rebel when they go to them, but the church will rebel first. So don't be dismayed. Do what I say. Eat this roll and go speak to the house of Israel. So, uh, verse 3 of chapter 3, It was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. And he said to me, Son of man, go, get you to the house of Israel, and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language, 
but to the house of Israel. Not to all the Gentile nations with different languages. Not to many people of a strange speech, of a hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have hearkened to you. They might have listened. The Gentile nations, remember Nineveh listened when Israel wouldn't. And they even repented. So God said, there's more hope for the Gentiles if I sent you there than there is for my own people, for my own church. People who claim to obey me and love me will not listen. Now, there'll be a few people of strange speech and hard language, but he's being basically sent to Israel, and most of the church is in America. And most people in America, at least up to the last five years, spoke English. Well, most still do. So they are to go, I believe, from that to the English-speaking world, basically to an English-speaking church. Ninety percent of the church is in America. Ten percent of it is scattered around the world, so there are a few with a language that you cannot understand but most will be understandable. I think he's saying here that most of the people that hear you will understand your language. Well, where is most of the church? I think through that you have to recognize that these will people be people who speak English and who will go to a church who basically speaks English and only a few who do not. Verse 7, But the house of Israel will not hearken to you, for they will not hearken to me. All the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted, rebellious, proud, vain, egocentric, leaning to their own understanding, we've seen from other scriptures. Most of the church will not listen to the two witnesses. Ninety percent will reject them. Ten percent will be stirred by God to come to them. Book of Haggai. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads. As an adamant harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart, and hear with your ears, and go. Get you to them of the captivity. Who is in the captivity of Babylon in the end time for 70 years? The church. That 70 years has now ended, I believe, and it is not long before this message will then begin to go out to the church, and later it will expand to the nation and the world. But God said He will make those who bring this message at the end to have heads harder than flint. So if you think you're hard-headed, wait till you knock heads with whoever this is, because they're going to be harder-headed than you are if you rebel against their words. Those are the words of God. So he tells them, don't fear. Ezekiel, but Ezekiel is only writing down what is going to be the message for the end time witnesses as shown very clearly, I think, from the beginning of chapter 3 as compared to Revelation 10. 
And we have been in the captivity of Babylon now these 70 years and have now been given opportunity to begin to be released from it by having a physical place to go. And then we have to turn loose and break the bonds otherwise, as Isaiah 52 clearly shows. You break the bonds. God doesn't tell us, I will deliver you. He said, you get out. Deliver yourself, O Zion, in Zechariah 2. He doesn't say, I'm going to make it easy for you. He doesn't say, I'm going to sell your house and your car and your land and your business and your whatever you got. He said, you get the job done, whatever it takes. If you have to separate from lands, from homes, from mates, even from your children, it says in Matthew 19. For God's sake, then you will receive eternal life. Because you sacrificed any and everything. I hadn't focused on children before. It's in there, Matthew 19. If it says separate from your wife or your husband, that would be very traumatic for some people. To other people, it might sound like a pretty good deal. <laughs> you know? But when you mention children, I think that would be traumatic for anyone. Everyone. And it, it will come to that. It will come to that. All right, picking you up again in verse 12. Then the Spirit took me up. So he was lifted up in this vision and carried to a different place. And I heard behind me a voice of a great Russian saying, Blessed be the glory of the Eternal from his place. So he said, What you're doing is going to have the blessing of God from his throne. So go ahead and do it, even though people will not accept you. And he was taken up in the Spirit. It wasn't something where he jumped a plane and went. Can you imagine this world allowing the two witnesses on an airplane? You think security is tight now? Drive buying a ticket and getting on an airplane when they know who you are. You couldn't go anywhere. So God's going to have to do it. And I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit, in anger and bitterness. It wasn't a pleasant task. But the hand of the Eternal was strong upon me, and His name meant one strengthened of God. So he couldn't do it on his own, but with the strength of Almighty God, even though it was a dirty job and somebody had to do it, it could be done. Then I came to them of the captivity of Tel Aviv that dwelt by the river of Kibar. So he didn't go to Babylon. He didn't go to the world. He went to the captives in the town of Tel Aviv on the Kibar River to the Jews that had been taken captive. We are the spiritual Jews today, and the message clearly goes to the spiritual Jews of today first. The church and the altar, not the world. And I sat where they sat, and I remained there astonished among them seven days. He had had such a powerful vision of those cherubs and of Christ, and had been given such a tough message that sounded sweet in one way and yet was bitterness in another, that when he was lifted up and taken and dropped in that village, he kind of sat there in shock for seven whole days, trying to digest, as he had been told, what he had been told to do. 
You might notice here that God gave the commission. He did not take it upon Himself. I have personally met, oh, I don't know, a dozen or two of the two witnesses myself over the years. And a lot of people have proclaimed themselves that. But was it a commission given from God or something they assumed they could take on? Now, this was very clearly something that came by vision and direct message from God to Ezekiel. And I would think, God working in patterns the way He does, that whoever this commission goes to in the end time is going to come about it in a way that comes directly from God, not something they themselves decide or determine or take upon themselves. Presumption is as the sin of witchcraft. Verse 17, Son of man, I have made you a watchman to the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him not warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. So he gives him kind of a, what's the word I'm looking for here? Not a catch-22, more of a damned if you do and damned if you don't kind of a thing. You better do it, otherwise you'll lose your blood. Yet if you turn the wicked, and he, and, and he turn not from his wicked way, he shall die uh, in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. So it said if you warn him, and he goes ahead and doesn't listen, then you've saved your own hide. Again, when a righteous man does turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not given him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood will I require at your hand. So, you could have righteous people. People in the church. People who have been obeying God. Who turn from God. And if you do not warn them, and they die in their iniquity that they've turned to, then you will die also. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, so he's talking to people here who are righteous. The only ones who could possibly be fit in that category today are the church. The only righteous ones on earth. If you warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, so the message goes not only to the unrighteous, but to the righteous as well. Even to those who have been obeying God, but maybe their attitudes aren't quite right and maybe they've been going back into sin or haven't come all the way out of sin or whatever. And they start going backward. If you warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he is warned. Also, you have delivered your soul. And the hand of the Eternal was there upon me and he said to me, Arise, go forth into the plain and I will there talk with you. So he was to leave the river, go out on the plain, and God said, I'll give you more information there. Then I rose and went forth into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Eternal stood there as the glory which I saw by the river of Kibar, and I fell on my face. This is getting to be a habit. 
Then the Spirit entered into me and set me upon my feet and spoke with me. Had to be picked up again. 